You're listening to a podcast from The Stage, the world's oldest and best theatre publication, thestage.co.uk. Hello, it's raining, I'm wearing a free poncho and I've already collected enough flies to fill the Firth of Forth. Yes, the Edinburgh Fringe has started. And in this podcast, we go behind the scenes of some of the best shows in this year's programme. Over the next three weeks, I'll be talking to performers, writers and directors about taking work to the festival and the stage's critics will offer their hot tips for what not to miss. Before all that, though, I'd like to thank Mobius for sponsoring this podcast. We really appreciate their support. So first up, I spoke to David Cumming and Clem Garrity from Kill the Beast, a company whose reputation has been slowly spreading in Edinburgh through word of mouth over the past few years. Their shows are steeped in film references, particularly horror and comedy, and this year they're bringing their new show, Don't Wake the Damp, as well as reviving last year's show, He Had Hairy Hands. So how did the company come together? We formed Kill the Beast in 2011 to make a show at the Lowry called The Boy Who Kicked Pigs. It was a book originally, a children's book that I read and really enjoyed. And then after that, the Lowry invited us to be associate artists with them. And we've been making shows with them ever since. What's the process behind making a show for you guys? Um, the writing process is always done as a five, as a collective. And then we essentially have a rule where you pass the script to the left in a circle and then the next week you would write a new scene and edit the last person's scene don't wait the damp the new show that's on uh, in edinburgh this year um was actually a much longer period of um about six months of us trying to work out what the story that we wanted to tell was 2035 leon yarrow is your average geologist from downtown capitopolis spending his time boring holes and everyone around him that was until one day when he found the Black Star Crystal of the Black Crystal Cave of Crystallia. Okay, what's it about? It is about tenants of a tower block in the near future who are being evicted from their homes and the three that refuse to leave and decide to stay and try and fight for the tower. We've sort of always been inspired by horror cinema. And then this show was really heavily inspired by sort of late 20th century horror technical elements and aliens and sci-fi and stuff sort of started bleeding into the genre. And we went and locked ourselves in a house in North Wales on a cliff for a week and watched a load of sort of films that we liked but didn't really know why and uh, started trying to make a story from that. Why are your shows sort of so reliant on reference to other things? I guess we are classic children of our generation of uh, postmodern living in a world of that, not that there aren't any new ideas but that you are so full of culture and you see everything every day on, on different kind of social media that you kind of become magpies and you take that little bit and you imagine if you put that with that then what do you get and you kind of if you if you take enough of that we are we are sampling from all these different films from these different plays but trying to find the new version of that story that you may have seen before but with a new twist on it for the modern day i think as well we started absorbing tv and cinema I mean, in my household anyway, way before I started going to the theatre. Yeah, same here. And I think as well, when you go to university, you suddenly meet people from completely different parts of the world and they were absorbing the same thing when they were kids. And it was like, oh my God, do you like that awful werewolf movie? I, I love that. Um, and I think our friendship was sort of not born from that, but strengthened because of that. Imbued with the charm of a thousand crystal stars, he became Captain Charisma. Now with his trusty sidekick, Boobs, and space valley, he fights to save existence. 
Space from the Evil Space King Act 4. So out of that kind of mix of, I think you've talked about horror and comedy and mystery, is there any one of them that kind of uh, overrides the other two? I mean, wh how, what genre would your show fit in if you want to put it into a genre? I think comedy is where we come from. As, as writers, we inherently come from a place of comedy. Yeah. I think as theatre makers, we come from a place of suspense and horror. So actually, the writing is comedic, but the overall mise-en-scene, I guess, would be more of a, um, a, a suspenseful idea. We can sit for hours and talk about The League of Gentlemen or Green Wing or Peep Show and that that's our, our true love, I think. We started making plays because that's all we'd ever done at uni yeah. but, but I think really our, yeah, our love and the stuff that we really want to make and write is, is always going to be comedy. I don't think we're going to be doing Macbeth anytime soon. You've got a very kind of distinct aesthetic as a company as well. So can you describe a bit of what we, what we see on stage? It was money mainly that, that led to that sort of slightly wonky homemade aesthetic. And then also because it was really inspired by silent cinema and, and stuff like that, that informed the makeup, which made the cast blend in a lot more. So the, the cast room white face and the, the body language of, of silent cinema is so much bigger, obviously, because they didn't have words, so then the cast was sort of, you know, pushing their physicality a lot more. Um, so everything is, has sort of been born from that. And it, yeah, it's relatively homemade shoddy. It's, <laughs> um, I mean, I wouldn't say shoddy. I mean, maybe on, on if we've had a quick get in, it might be a bit shoddy. But um, I think it's more, it's more homemade and more, it's overtly theatrical. That aesthetic helps that, the, 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 the huge costumes, the, it all becomes very much more cartoony and more uh, uh, like a, a, a live um, flip book that you're, you're flipping through yeah. as opposed to being a serious piece of drama. It, it, it helps kind of bring the right vibe. Why take the show to Edinburgh? Um, mm. Because I think especially now that you're, you know, f five years down the line and you're pretty well established um, and it must be really expensive to take a show like this it up there. definitely is. <laughs> yeah. Don't do it. So there's a reason we're doing two shows, and that reason is costs no extra money to whack the old show in the back of the van, and that will be another income stream. It's insanely expensive to go to Edinburgh Festival these days. I think, like, almost prohibitively expensive, especially we were starting off now, I'm not sure what we'd no, ever... We I don't think we'd ever do it, to be honest, which is a bit of a shame, a massive shame, actually. But... It is also, you've got to recognise, it is the world's largest trade fair for theatre. It is the only thing of its kind in the entire world. It's the only place that you can find that much stuff. And if you're not there, essentially, you're not in the game. Uh, we may be, in your own words, well-established. We are certainly not big enough to be able to book an entire tour just because people may have heard of us. So for a company of your size, what are the, what are the biggest costs for taking something up there? Accommodation. And actually, something that we have found as we've gone on is um, storage space. So we've got three shows. Literally, our parents' houses are full to the rafters, garages are full, and it's getting to the point where actually we are like, we, are, we have nowhere to put these. Where, where will these things go? We're lucky enough to be in a position where we're able to pay ourselves at least a kind of meagre minimum wage for being there. So that it would be, again, one of the main costs. And that is a very privileged position to be in for Edinburgh. We can't moan about Edinburgh that much no. this year. We're, we're doing all right. Um, I, I think the marketing thing is quite oh, hard. Yeah. It's not really knowing 
where to put your money because I would say uh, from the years that we have been at Edinburgh, I can't fully pin down what it is that works to sell tickets. And I think it's probably word of mouth. And I think you, you can't, I don't know where you put your money to, to make that work. Do you have a PR or marketing team that you employ? No, we've, okay. we've always just done it ourselves and sort of sent the cast out in their costumes to do the whole mile, Pleasant's Courtyard, schlepping around the cobblestones. Well, was that a conscious decision at some point? It was a conscious decision this year because it was like that money it, essentially it's what Clem's point of not really knowing if that would guarantee more sales Edinburgh is essentially just one month and if you just have to put in an extra hour every day to flyer instead of getting PR and marketing I mean who knows maybe that would help or maybe PR and marketing would mean you sell out on the first day and you didn't doss around the rest of the time but it takes so five years three shows is that right yeah two shows a day an hour a day at least going out and flyering yeah, we've, we've and that found. means you're in a kind of sustainable position as a company. So it doesn't take much. It doesn't take <laughs> <laughs> No, you just wake up and it happens, yeah? <laughs> we've actually found essentially two hours before your show. So an hour, you'd go and get into makeup an hour before your show. Um, so the, the hour before that, hit your venue and just every single person you see, just ask what you've seen today. Are you seeing anything in the next two hours? If you're not, then come see our show. Really hounded me like it's on really soon. You don't need to go anywhere. You've got time to get a drink, have some food. Uh, so if someone's coming up to me and saying, "Oh, there's something on now. Go and see this," I do most of the time. What would you say are the best? Is the best time to have a show on? Then? Well, I think it's different depending on what your show is. Um, annoyingly, our show is both. Um, but if your show is comedy, you don't necessarily want to be up against the huge guys at like eight or nine. Yeah. So you want to be around six. Half six? I think the answer is clearly, we don't know. <laughs> Theatre, I'd say about four. Yeah, I think late afternoon, once everyone's had that initial sort of schlep around and something to eat, and then it started to rain and they need somewhere to hide. So around four, three, four, five, do you think we're really selling Edinburgh as an experience? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should go. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> With adventures awaiting on board his mighty spaceboat, the Crystal Continuum, Captain Charisma is landed us only. That was Clem Garrity and David Cumming from Kill the Beast, and their show Don't Wake the Damp is on at Pleasant Stone at 3pm every day except the 15th. Just a reminder that we're very grateful to Mobius for sponsoring this podcast. And it's worth saying, too, that their support doesn't have any bearing on the views, whether good or bad, expressed in this here podcast. Now, while the stage's Edinburgh critics were sorting their schedules and sharpening their pens, I caught up with Stuart Pringle to get his fringe recommendations. I want to be proven wrong here, but when I looked at the programme this year, it didn't look particularly like it was going to be a vintage year. There was very few shows that really stood out, and it seemed like a lot of Edinburgh regulars were staying at home this year. Really? This year, I genuinely think it looks like one of the best programmes that I've seen for some time. There's so much, there's, there's probably about 20 shows that I'm genuinely really excited to see at the right. Fringe, which is about 15 more than I'm usually excited to see at the Fringe. Seriously? Yeah, I think it's looking like an absolute vintage year. 
going to go down in history as a vintage year at the end of the The year that Bano was proven wrong. Right, so what's number one? Number one, I think, is probably Diary of a Madman for me. Good at, choice. Uh, Travis, which is um, Al Smith uh, writing an adaptation of the Goggle story directed by Chris Hayden. And he set it around the painting of the fourth rail bridge, which was, as a kid, one of my absolute favourite fascinations. I just like the, the kind of futile nature of something that needed to be repainted while it was uh, still being painted at one end, the other end it had to start. And I just think it's such a brilliant left field way to talk about that story and to tell that story. And it's a multicasting, even though it's a monologue as a, as a novel. And I just think it's going to be uh, really fascinating. OK, and that's Chris Hayden's last show as Artistic Director of the it Gate is, as well. It is. So you better go out on high. And he's had a, I mean, he's had a stunning track record at the Fringe. So last year he took up the Christians yep. with Lucy Ellenson, which did really, really well. Uh, Grounded was either the year before or the year before that with Lucy Ellenson again, which was amazing. And he's just, he's been one of the most exciting uh, artistic directors of any space in London in the time that I've been in London. And if this is going to be a swan song, then I can't wait to see it. I mean, it's an hour and 45, which is at least 45 minutes too long to be at the Edinburgh Fringe, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. But apart from that, I think it's going to be amazing. That's well, funnily one. enough, one of the shows I'm quite excited about seeing is also a long one. Well, it's 90 minutes, and it's a new musical uh, called No Horizon. The reason I'm excited to see it is because it's written by a primary school head teacher from Yorkshire, and he spent the last 17 years writing this show. Jesus. Because he came across the story of a guy called Nicholas Saunderson, who was a blind 18th century mathematician, who, before Braille had been invented, managed to rise up through the ranks until he was head of maths at Cambridge and was consorting with kings and queens. And the writer, Andy Platt, just thought that this story, not only is it incredibly inspirational for young children that you can overcome adversity, but also had just been completely forgotten about. And so he's written a musical about it, and he's raised a huge amount of money, and he's taking it up to the fringe. Incredible. Um, where's that on? <laughs> that is on an underbelly. Okay, well, I'll go, I've not, it's not on my list, but I've put that <laughs> on my list. It is now, 21 shows. 21 shows. Other things that I'm really, really excited about, um, It Folds at Summerhall, which is by Broken Talkers, who did. It was during the Great Fringe, or one of the Great Fringes of the Dead Dads plays, in which everyone's play or comedy show is about their father having died. It was the best of the bed da- uh, Dead Dads that I've ever seen. But I think it's going to be really amazing, and this time it's at Summerhall, so we can have a nice gin and tonic afterwards. Are you going to be hanging around Summerhall? a lot this year yeah depressingly predictable but yeah um, uh, this year I'm going to be seeing I think about a third of the things that I'm watching for the stage at Edinburgh at Summerhall and I think that's a reflection of how amazing the programme is like Shit Theatre who are doing the absolutely wonderful Letters to Windsor House and if you haven't booked for that already you should now a new one from Good which sounds even more ambitious than their work usually is but quite a bit of The Pleasance some great programme at The Pleasance yeah um, definitely really really good also Underbelly, I've got people like Lucy McCormick performing there and and Christine is there. The big one that I'm really, really looking forward to, but slightly apprehensive about at the same time, is Adler and Gibb. Yeah. So Tim Crouch's play, which was on at the Royal Court in 2014 and blew my tiny mind. Uh, I think it's one of the best things I've ever seen. But he's condensing it down to 90 minutes and it doesn't have Denise Goff, who was outstanding in it when it was at the Royal Court. So... I'm looking forward to seeing what it's going to be like, but I don't want to be disappointed. I'm a little bit worried about it, just because I loved it so much. Like you, I thought it was one of the best things I'd ever seen. It's, it's the single best play I've ever seen about art, and I would be quite happy for my memory of Adler and Gibb to be forever frozen watching it in the Royal Court that day. Are you going to go and see it, then? Y- yes. <laughs> Apprehensively. Yeah. I'm sure. I, I think he's absolutely brilliant. I've liked yeah. or loved everything he's ever done, um, and I'm not worried to revisit this one in this way is unusual but that's that's exciting i suppose excitement not fear <laughs>
Excitement, not fear. I'll just keep repeating that until I see the show. Well, that's my feeling towards Edinburgh generally, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That was Stuart Pringle. And that's it for this episode. Next time, New Zealand performer Tim Carlson discusses his one-man show, One Day Mokko, which is about homelessness and connection. There's loads more to come in these Edinburgh podcasts, including Mark Thomas. So stay tuned and thanks for listening.